Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Good. Good, good, good. How are you going? I'm doing good. I have a, I have a dusky voice from having a cold. Oh, you do have a dusky voice. Does that sound dusky? You do. You sound like uh, the stage manager of a southern theater company. Listen, I'm glad y'all are going to be out here. We're going to need to get them mics and uh, we need to take and sweep out that whole area before y'all get out there. Got to sweep out that whole area. <laughs> take and. Take and. I, I, I grew up. Did you, did, was, that, was that in parlance when you were a child? Take you, and. Take and. Is that, is that purely a southern uh, thing? Yeah, I don't know what that means. Yeah, you, need, you need to. Uh, you need, you need, well, first of all, you always say you need to. You need, you, uh-huh. need, you need to take and move them boxes. Oh, take and move them boxes. No, we, to, yeah. Well, we didn't speak that way up here. <laughs> I may just do this all the time now. <laughs> my, my favorite is the kind of Southern fellow who has, has a voice real dusky like that, but also a little bit effeminate. Mm-hmm, a little effeminate. A little effeminate, but he's not. He's not he, it's, it's kind of a Georgia thing. Yeah, right. Sure. The, there's a, there's that, there's that, uh, that Southern, there's that Southern twang that almost sounds like, like Brooklyn nasal. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. 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 The, uh, it's 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 yeah sort of almost a jersey squeak well when you got me thinking about this uh many many episodes ago talking about how many uh type take and take and t- <laughs> i can't stop <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sick um you got me thinking about this with the number of people in uh in the south that are from you know the british isles from scotland and, right in ireland and now it, it's funny uh i do kind of notice uh, some similarities. It'd be, it'd be fun to, to have a language person sit down, take and take and sit down with you, and uh, and and be able to illustrate those uh, similarities. I would like to sit with a language person. I'd like to take and sit. I'd like to take and sit with a language person for a long time. I would love to talk to a language person. I, I love language people. You know, you know, we, of all, you the, of all the pedants, of all people. the the pedantic people that are out there, language people bother me the least. Oh yeah, the real language people. Hmm. I love language stuff. I do too. I really like the language stuff. I hope my daughter loves words. How could she not? Well, I am, I don't even know the word, probably hyperlingual. Mega, megalingual. <laughs> what's, what's a nice Latinate word for literally never stops talking? <laughs> Mondo. <lingual>. Mondo verbal. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's not that many things. I, I, I don't really care how she turns out by and large, but I, I, I hope that she, I hope she likes music and I hope she likes words. Yeah. We got a lot of words going on around here. We're trying to get. Your uh, kid's wordy. We're, <laughs> she kid, is wordy. She's a wordy little baby. And we're trying to, you know, I, one of the things that uh, one of the things that made me who I am is that at a pretty young age, I think probably uh, like pre-memory, I realized that uh, that listening was was the secret. Like listening, o- overhearing adults, like listening in on adult conversations, mm. was going to be the was going to be where all the real information was exchanged, you know? And so I was a, not an eavesdropper, but I would, you're a kid, right? Nobody expects that you know what's going on. I would just go sit on somebody's lap and just sit quietly and listen to the adults talk. They kind of forget that you're there. They absolutely forget you're there. I think they get used to, I know this is true for me, um, where like, I I think you get so used to kid with, with little kids when they hear anything, they start remarking on it or they try to change the subject or they want a cookie or something. If a little kid's around and doesn't say anything, they could pick up a lot of information. Well, and it worked for me until I was about 15. I would just come (laughs) sit in the room and sit quietly and 
listened to them and I, you know, I, I knew enough to know that my contribution was not valued. You're <laughs> when, so wise. <laughs> when they were talking about politics or, or economics or something, I, I didn't have anything to offer, but I would just sit and listen. And I listened until I listened until I didn't understand. And then I listened more. And so what I'm trying, I'm trying to impart that to my daughter because it's a, because it's the core of my understanding of the world, right? And my little girl right now thinks that her the first thought that comes into her head is the most important thought that anyone's ever had. <laughs> and we could be, you know, we could be standing in a house that's on fire talking about exit routes and she would say, "An orange is like an apple." And <laughs> think that that, you know, we should all stop what we're doing and 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 appraise the wisdom of that idea. So I'm trying to explain to her basically through through enforcement that she needs to shut up. She needs to shut up and listen. Hmm. But um, it's for her own good. She'll get a lot more intelligence that way. That's right. You she'll get gather. Here. She'll gather more intelligence. It's how way. you gather intelligence. <laughs> right. Shut up. I think I, I've done that with, uh, well, you know, for some reason now I'm thinking of Daniel Plainview, you know, that movie you can't watch because of the music oh, um, yeah. with the little kid. And, and, and whenever Daniel speaks, his son listens, his son sits there in silence and is clearly listening to everything that he's saying. Can you imagine yes. that? Can you imagine having a little kid that would just sit there <laughs> and listen dream. and then think about what you had to say? You know, that's my dream. All I want to do is teach. <laughs> All I want to do is teach my child. But right now, she is resistant to being educated by me, which is why I'm 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 taking my show on the road. Mm. I'm going to go teach the town. It's about time. Yeah, I heard about. I want to talk about that. Yeah. I I um I mean I, I've said this with. Mm, I, I want to say with Jess, but truthfully, I you know when I say to my daughter, I, I don't know how to get her into the please and thank you route. But yeah. I, I really believe in the please and thank you route. It served me well. I learned. I think I told you this at a young age. I became somewhat obsessed with etiquette. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, I was a very lonely kid, and I would read any reference book that I could put my hands on. Did you read that Miss Manners? No, she's a poser. But that Miss Manners book, that first one she put out, that's yeah. like. That's like six inches fat. For me, that was Amy Vanderbilt. Oh, Amy Vanderbilt. Yeah, yeah. The um, we had. I think I told you this once before. I think it was, it was either Amy Vanderbilt or who was the other really famous uh, etiquette person. Oh, um, uh, well, what's her butt? Uh, yeah, the other one. Uh, Post uh, Emily Post. Emily Post. We had a uh, hardcover etiquette book at our house. I don't know how my. Fa- it's always interesting to ponder like how anything ended up in your family. Uh-huh. You, like sometimes you look back and you're like, why, why do we have that in our house? That's weird. <laughs> And we had this book that was, like you say, it was, it was it, seriously, it was at least like three and a half inches thick. Hardcover book from the early 60s with illustrations by Mr. Andy Warhol, interestingly enough. What? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Back when he was just an illustrator. And, um, but I read that thing, man, I, I knew from Tiny Forks. You know, I I knew about like you you do your uh, you do your napkin and you fold it in half for dinner. You fold it in quarters for lunch. I knew all this stuff backwards and forwards. You know, like you, I knew how to make a uh, hospital corners on a bed. That's right. I knew all this stuff when I was like nine. It was super weird. You got to know how to make hospital corners if you're ever going to learn to short sheet a bed. (laughs) See, nobody gets their bed short sheeted anymore, and I think something's been lost. People don't understand. (laughs) Education is not a buffet. You have you have to go in and work through the courses. You can start with the forks on the outside and you move in. That's how education works. If you don't Look, understand that reference, I can't help you. Looking at my looking at my bookshelf right here next to my desk, <laughs> I have here are the there are the the first four books. Uh The New York Times Guide to Essential Knowledge, hmm. which is a three inch wide book. The second book, the Ann Landers Encyclopedia, A to Z. 
<laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. So if you need a little guidance, you just go to the index. Ann Landers Encyclopedia A to Z. And this book was published in 1978. Cuckolding. So, Cuckolding. Page 128. A to Z as, uh, you know, up to 1978. The second or the third book is The Reader's Encyclopedia, edited by William Rose. Uh, what is his name? Uh, William Rose Bennett, and then the the fourth book, I swear to you, my friend, is Miss Manners' Guide to Excruciatingly Correct Behavior. Ah, oh, nice. And you know, Miss Manners, um, sure she 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 was a she was a. Uh, you a know what, John? Janet, I, I, come lately. I spoke I spoke inadvisably, and for that, I apologize. I've it's always all, enjoyed her most on talk shows. I thought she was a wonderful talk show guest. She's a very witty writer, and she makes. Uh, she's kind of foxy she makes, too. She's pretty foxy, and she makes the. She makes the etiquette uh, seem. Uh, it's a, it goes down with a spoonful of sugar, mm. and she can. But she can be a bitch too. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's the game, man. <laughs> don't, don't, I, don't don't hate the player. <laughs> you know, you would think in high school that I would have been sitting around just learning to roll doobies and uh, and flicking my switchblade into a log, but in fact, <laughs> you would think I was reading. Miss Manners got excruciatingly correct behavior front to back. I find those books extremely calming. I think I used to really like, because of my somewhat turbulent and weird childhood, I, I think I really enjoyed things like The Brady Bunch as a cultural touchstone. And I enjoyed reference books. I enjoyed things that showed that there was a gentle order to life. Yes. Yes. I really, really did. I think I, there's still a part of me that looks at that and doesn't just kind of cackle ironically. There's a part of me that says, like, wow, you know, ideology used to really work for us. Well, and the sense that, like, the sense that Miss Manners had, which was like, oh, dear. Oh, my dear. Did you really just fold your napkin across your... Did you really just tuck your napkin into your shirt? Oh, oh, darling. And she, you could just hear her, like, gently... Like and I don't, I don't think she would even reach out and take the napkin away herself. She would always keep her hands to herself, but she would just indicate to you. She would use the napkin tong for that was provided. <laughs> she, and and the feeling like oh, there's a right way, there's a right way and a wrong way, and and like uh, I, I I was sitting at a at a fancy dinner the other day, and I had my elbow on the table. Oh, I still feel bad when I do that. I still feel and guilty, I, and I felt bad. I felt bad, and then I realized that I was I was going to keep my elbow there. I was going to keep it there knowingly, mm-hmm. and I because because I had a mind to, mm. <laughs> and and that if there was you know if there was any rogue at this dinner party who could have a mind to keep his elbow on the table, it was going to be me. You had to know, you had to, I, I mean, I had a constellation of, of thoughts r- rolling through my head and that, you know, that I was somewhat playing the river, riverboat captain by putting my elbow up there and leaving it there. And the, the, the problem was there was no one else in the room that was even, that could even tisk tisk at me. So they, I could, was, they couldn't appreciate what a, what, what a subtle cue that was for you to make that ch- decision to have a mind to put one elbow up there. No, I was dying. You're, you're to a be, jazz man. You know exactly what you're doing. Exactly. I was dying to be tisk tisked by somebody so that I could twirl the end of my mustache and like dip, dip, dip my white dinner jacket in the consomme. 
but no one tisk tisked. That's sickening. No one knows up because no one knows. No one knows that you're that you're that you're that you're playing at uh, social social and cultural mores. No one even knows that anymore. Yeah, you can't even riff. You can't even riff on stuff because nobody nobody knows the tune. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you two bullets on this, and this. I, I honestly feel this. I, I should feel terrible about having said this bullet number one to my daughter, but it's really true. Which is, first of all, the please and the thank you thing. It's such a simple bit of social lubricant, and nobody, no matter what, even if you're being like an, uh, a, a faux civil British person, like it's still nice to say please and thank you. It's nice and to call someone sir. Or, or, or nice. ma'am or miss or something like it's really really nice but i've told her the truth i said i've said you know ellie you will get away with so much in life if you can learn to genuinely say please and thank you for things because people if you want something done ask for it as a favor and somebody's much more likely to do it <laughs> could you please pass me the salt it sounds so much better than give me the salt it really does that's that's i mean and you know i mean truthfully i, I think it's just something it's going to be a while before she learns that that's that's just a nice thing to do and that she'll appreciate it too and that but you know honestly you do get away with a lot but bullet number two this is huge and i, I did not get this i i was looking through i was like i know you're a buddhist um it was like looking yeah. through the text you know i I'm looking for the part about how to lose my ego but not learning that the real point was something much <laughs> Is that the Buddha bell? That's my Buddha bell. <laughs> That's right. That's what is that number twelve? <laughs> Rung twelve. Uh huh. I'm Get up it? there. Get I'm it? up there looking back. Don't talk about Fight Club. That's right. <laughs> number sixteen. There are no homonyms. <laughs> um, but uh, this is I forget where I first read this, but I probably this is one of those things I probably had to read eleven times before it really sunk in. And, and this is what makes uh, with Judith uh, Judith Manners. What's her name? You know the lady. Mm, yeah, yeah. Miss uh, Manners. Uh, Judith Martin. Judith. Yeah, Judith Manners. Is that you? You learn that. The point of etiquette, I'm going to say this slowly and carefully, even though I know you know this, for our listeners, the point of etiquette is not to be fancy. It's not to be prescriptive. It's not to have a bunch of rules for no reason other than to try and make people feel bad. No, quite the contrary. Etiquette exists to make true etiquette. When you get down to the real, like, like black diamond level of etiquette, it's not about rules. It's about doing everything you can to make other people feel comfortable. That's right. And that's what people don't understand. If all they do is read the rules and correct people on whether they're using the right uh, tertiary lobster fork, then they're missing the point. The point is not to make somebody feel bad about their fork. The point is to know, we know that at this point in the meal, if we've all read the same book, we know which ones of these to use and we we can enjoy this. But ultimately, it's about making somebody feel welcome and not make it a big deal. Even, Even if they put a glass on your table without a coaster, like find a way to make them feel at ease about that. You that's can make right. them feel at ease, but you're both trying to make each other feel at ease, and that's what etiquette is. That is, that is the that is the judo of Miss Manners, because I was I was trying to get at it a second ago. Not only would she not reach out and and like touch your napkin, but she would she would she would somehow make it seem like uh, your idea, and that she that you know that she was there to help you, or uh, she was there to. Yeah, as you're saying, make it easier. Gent- like, gently guide you I, toward this oh, thing. That's oh, very let sensible. Let me get you a coaster. Oh, let me help you. You know, she. It's a very, it's a very gentle but firm kind of uh, knowledge of the way things are. And you're right. It, it's like it's like the the rules of language. This debate is happening all the time. Why why it doesn't language? Why doesn't English now just become a free for all? Why? Why do we follow these archaic grammar and spelling rules? Why, why don't be everybody just be talking how they like be? <laughs> and uh, 
you know, of course I am on the side of, I am on the side, like, like the members of the French Academy, I believe that the language evolved just fine right up until the point that I decided that it should stop. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, I, I love, uh, I love the evolution of English, but the core rules I adhere to and I espouse. Yep. And I mean, I think we can all, anybody, you know, who's done a little bit of book learning, maybe even been to college, will appreciate the fact that, that language evolves. It always has evolved. It will evolve. But, you know, it, it, let's put it in the simplest way possible. It's nice to know the rules before you break them. And it's really nice to know the rules before you unknowingly break them. Because all of the, the older I get and the more I, I don't always speak with precision, but mm. when I do speak with precision, it helps me think with precision mm. because words mean things. And this, mm. these five words that people use almost interchangeably really mean different things. And the subtlety of the differences in their meaning is really amplified when you use them correctly. And somebody, somebody I think that matters. Me, I think it really does matter. It does matter. Somebody asked me the other day, uh, you know, I'm somewhat not notorious, but infamous. But, not not even infamous, but there 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 lauded. are. I don't even think lauded. There uh, there are three to five percent of the words in English that I pretty clearly mispronounce. And someone said to me the other day, like you always say that word wrong, and you know that it's wrong because. Like other people have surely corrected you. Why do you do it? Why do you still say that and so many other words like wrong? And I thought about it and I said, well, I do not prefer the way that everyone else pronounces it. <laughs> and, and she said, but I mean, that's how it's pronounced. And I said, but I, I just don't prefer it. You sound like Bartleby. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, the word she was referring to was uh, the word that everyone, I guess, agrees is pronounced comely, hmm. which I do not prefer. I prefer to say comely. She's oh, a com- that sounds much nicer. She's a comely young woman. Comely uh, does not sound like a compliment. Comely is a disgusting word. Comely is a beautiful word. And it is a, com- the, uh, a, comely, a comely young woman sounds like the victim of unexpected bukkake. That's right. A comely young woman is the mm-hmm. opposite of a homely young woman. She's comely. <laughs> That's good. I and like that. It is how I've always preferred it. It is your prerogative. And that's right. And so, and so, when people say comely, I I flinch a little. Mm-hmm. And when I say comely, it usually like around. And this is the problem because. Around the room, it takes people a second to figure out what I'm saying. Well, that's and good. They got to think a, a little. Think a little that's bit. Right. That's a little moment. Oh, forgive me. I made you think a little bit. <laughs> and so, my that, bad. There are so many words like that in my like private lexicon that I just mispronounce because my pronunciation is the one I prefer. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember if I invented this. I probably heard, read this somewhere. Grudge pronouncing. Mm. Like mm. artisanal. Yeah. Oh, there, you're very good at that. I think I, <laughs> I, I, there are some things that, that I will always say a certain way, and I'm, I'm happy that other people are starting to, to, to pick it up. Yeah, artisanal. Artisanal. Well, no, no one should say artisanal. That's just, that's, 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 
That's disgusting. Why are you saying that? It's not artisanal. All baked goods are artisanal. Otherwise, it wouldn't be baked goods. What was wrong? You know, really, you've hired artisans? Is that what you did? You hired an artisan? No. You never hired an artisan. artisan. You you hired some union guy to come in and make you buns. You don't know when an artisan's there. An artisan reveals themselves. That's right. It's like you can't call yourself a poet. You could say you write verse, but you should never say you write poetry. Yeah. Let your teacher... Let your teacher praise you. Don't praise yourself. Yes. You know what? We should write a book, John. I don't want to make a big deal about it, but I'm just saying there's a lot of ways that we could help people. Well, what I don't understand, for my, as far as I can tell, for my whole life, I have said Sasquatch. That's, in, in that is the received pronunciation that I received. Sasquatch. Sasquatch. And during but, the during the Bigfoot the, during the Bigfoot flare-ups in the seventies, yeah, the seventies Bigfoot flare-ups. That's right. There had been Bigfoots before. Big feet before. Sorry, my, my bad. I think it's Big's feet. Big, it's Big's feet. Gentle's <laughs> gentle's person. Big's foot. Big's feets were had been seen historically, and yep. then there was a rash. There was a rash. There was a there was a rash. Do you remember an outbreak? Moyes in search of in search of hundred percent. With the Bigfoot screaming in the dark, and now, the now, now the, the, the Bigfoot, the Bigfoot, the Bigfoot that, uh, with the blurry footage—that's that's in Washington, right? Yeah, that's in Washington State. We have a lot of Bigfoot here. Bigfoot persons, <laughs> and um, and so uh, so I always said Sasquatch. Yeah, but uh, apparently, somewhere along the line, everyone else in the world agreed that it's pronounced Sasquatch, Ugh. which I think is a terrible, terrible pronunciation. Sasquatch. It's vulgar. Sasquatch, comely Sasquatch. It's it's a Sasquatch. Sasquatch. That sounds so much prettier, isn't that? It nicer? sounds like a delicious soft cheese. Wouldn't you rather be a Sasquatch 100%. than a Sasquatch? And what about what about words we're losing like niggardly? It's very very difficult to get away with niggardly today. Well, yeah. The problem is that it, that it's a word that it's a great that, word that so many dummies have have. Uh, so many dummies have blanched at it that the people in between, the non-dummies, who know what the word means, still feel it's incendiary because non-dummies have made a practice of worrying about what dummies think. <laughs> this, is, this, is the, this is like half the problem with the modern age. There are all these middle, these middle non-dummies who are, who are like walking around on pins and needles because some dummy might misunderstand that. Just, just to capture this while I think of it, one appendix in our book is definitely going to be the taxonomy of dummies. Oh, it's going to be like a big pyramid. We could go on and on about dummies, but it used to be, this is the thing, middle, middle, let's call them middle dummies. Middle dummies used to aspire to attract the, the praise of non dummies. And now middle dummies only aspire uh, or, or middle dummies now only act in fear of like uh in in fear of the dummies you see what i'm saying i think so yeah i'm not really explaining it very well but it used to be that the middle that the middle brow aspired to the high brow and neither one concerned themselves at all with the low brow but now the low brow dominates and the middle brow is is on pins and needles at the prospect of offending the lowbrow, and so they d- they devote all their energy because you know the because the highbrow is out of fashion. The highbrow has all these overtures of or all these uh, like these um, like ne- negative connotations of exclusivity and uh, wealth and 
and privilege, dare I say, privilege. Yeah, but, but also warring with the um, middle dummy, middle brow thing to like kind of want to appear uh, a little fancy, maybe. So I'm when I when I you say middle middle, what'd you say, middle dummies, middle brow, middle dummies. Middle dummies I think of like um, what's a good example? What can I? Um, whom? Whom? <laughs> whom shall attend the opening of the rectory? Yeah, whom shall? With Margaret and I. It's like, well, you got like three problems in that one. Like there's, there's like, there's several different things in that sentence that didn't really need to be that way. I really feel like whom shall would be a great DJ name. (laughs) DJ whom shall? DJ whom shall. (laughs) Yeah. Well, see, you know, I've never been worried about fancy, you know, like fancy is this. And I think that this goes back to the, to what you were talking about before the, the great influx of Irish into Appalachia. Like there's uh, there's all this Appalachian worry about about being too big for your britches, this sort of Nashville concern that you not act above your station, and that has the the whole class structure that that used to be a part of is gone now, and there's just this this uh, residual sort of grease stain in the culture of. Of a, of of a feeling that 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 lines up with all these other aspects in the culture, where the lower the the, the lower and the cruder is considered more real. The more the more vulgar is the realer. Oh yeah, yeah, because it's it's the language of the quote unquote people. It's closer to the truth, and it's not trying to cover up half truths with with fancy words. Right, and so that has that that has this false friend in uh in a kind of like in the humility or the the you know the the desire not to be uh not to brag or to be or to put on airs and that the 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 false friendship with with the idea that vulgarity is closer to truth has produced a culture wide sense that um that we should, I mean, seriously, that people should be uh, uh, flying in their pajamas, which is, which is, as you know, the the beginning of the end. And I'm yeah. speaking now as a as the the human envoy for the UFOs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody who who gets gets out of the um, the shuttle to the airport vehicle with the buckwheat pillow already around their neck. Yeah, that's that. That, I, that does not. This is not a society that that is ready for any kind of serious advancement. Yeah, no, not at all. This, these are people who are who one of these days are going to go through airport security, and it's going to it's going to just direct them right into the soylent green grinder. <laughs> I but, used to think it was just peculiar to this show that you would talk about the airport security line, but I'm starting to think that that whatever comes from the super chain generation, there's going to be something involving something like the TSA line because that seems to me that that is the nexus for everything that drives you crazy about this well, country. That, they are it's it's just like it's just like the Walgreens situation. They are training us they are training us through this gradual increase in indignity to just go into the hopper, just go through the the branding cage into the you know, they're just feeding us through one, one after another and now they're looking at x-rays of us naked and we just uh, we just say oh okay and then that's good soon, branding cage and the indignity has become patriotic absolutely and then pretty soon after the after that uh 
after the x-ray, they're going to have us walk through a darkened tunnel. Just a short darkened tunnel. You'll be able to see the end. And then pretty soon it's going to get a little bit longer. It's going to have a turn in it. So you can't see the light at the end. But it's okay. You can trust us. We <laughs> it's just like have some to, kind of Temple Grandin thing. <laughs> yeah, we just have to send you through this darkened tunnel that has a turn halfway through. And then at a certain point, the turn is going to get closer. So it's you're going to have to... You're gonna to have to get through a little, like little gate or a little kind of like uncomfortable squeeze in the middle. But that's, that's right. The, the Patriot Tunnel has to evolve. That's fine to, to, to address the problems with terrorism. It's what we have to do. And then one day you're gonna turn. You're gonna squeeze through that little gap and turn the corner right into the right into the saw blades. Don't call it an abattoir, though. That's a little too fancy. <laughs> <laughs> it's called it's a, it's a freedom knife room. <laughs> Right into the saw blades. I elected to have a pat-down search the other day. Nice. And it was so invasive and and characterized by a kind of, like, banality. Like, I said, all right, I'm, you know what? I'm not going to go through your x-ray machine. I'm, I gotta, I'm on a layover here. I got three hours to kill. I'm going to see what this... I'm going to get the pat-down. How do you like them apples? Right. And so... The first thing they do is kind of try and dissuade you. Like, oh, it's going to be a long time. It's like, yeah, I know it's going to be a long time. Like, I'm, I'm, I got all the time in the world. You guys put your leather gloves on and let's go. And so then they usher you through the little gate and they hold you over on the side while all the other people go by. And I'm standing there with a kind of superior look on my face like, I got the time. Let's go through the pat down. And then here comes the guy, and he's talking to somebody across the room, and he puts his, puts his plastic gloves on. And then he starts giving you a full-on fucking pat-down. Like... He doesn't do that date-rapey explanation. They usually do the date-rapey explanation, like, Sir, I'm going to be firmly touching your genitals. Yeah, Sir, have- I'm going to run the back of my hand across your anus. Maybe some of that, but I mean, like right away. They go into your pants now, right? Don't they go into your pants a little bit? They do. And right away, I regretted, I regretted coming over. Like this was so much more vulgar than, than whatever year of my life I'm going to lose by being irritated by a teenager operating a machine made by Halliburton <laughs> and s- sold to the government you know, for 50 times what its list price should be. Right. But this guy, you know, some dope is just like, he's just pressing on me in a way that is transparently unnecessary. Like, honestly, I'm, you know, like I understand that, that you have to do it because people could self select and then be covered with plastic explosives. But like, this is a th- there's a punitive aspect to the way that they do it. Like it is clearly punishment meant to dissuade you from ever doing this again. Yeah, if, if a Kurt Vonnegut alien were to like write a paragraph on what he or she alien was seeing, they would basically say that there there is a system 
that is in place to make sure that everybody will follow an unnecessary rule and anybody who doesn't follow the unnecessary rule will be made uncomfortable in front of other people for not following the unnecessary rule. That's what it really kind of looks like. Super, super uncomfortable. And, you know, I like spent the rest of the afternoon kind of like but punitive. Your word punitive. It's yeah. it really it really feels like we're gonna make an example of you. We're gonna waste some of your time. You know how inconvenient this is for me. It would be so much easier if you would just go through the porno scanner. Yeah. But now I'm gonna make this a little uncomfortable for you, but not not uncomfortable enough that like it's actionable. It's gonna well, just be really humiliating for you. So I'm traveling with my family the other day and I had encouraged them all to get uh get the pre check card. <laughs> Back when I believed that there was any value to the pre-check card at all. I just heard this story on another show. Tell them. This is where you go. John has been approved for Black Diamond Lane, yeah. right? And we get to the airport and we print out our tickets. We're all traveling together. We're sitting next to each other in an aisle. There's four of us. And two of the people have pre-check on the top of their ticket. But I and my three-year-old daughter do not have pre-check. And so we get to the we get to the woman at the security desk and she points half of our party down the pre-check lane and half of our party into the other lane. And I said, "You know, we're all traveling together." And she said, "Doesn't matter." And I said, "You know, this is a 3-year-old girl. Like do you honestly believe that I would I mean, is there a terrorist in the world who would who would take his three year old as a as a false as a false flag as a as a beard a bomb beard three year old baby? Then, but this person has already their mind is already shut off. Sir, I'm going to ask this individual to move out of the pre check lane. Yeah, and so you know, so right away you're just you're in the hopper, and if you make any fuss about it. You just, it's, there, there's only one option, which is that you don't fly today. Like the police come because either you acquiesce or you don't fly. And we get all the way, and you know, and I'm standing there and I'm like taking my belt off and I'm taking my wallet out and I'm just feeling like so much. I'm just feeling that, that perfect storm of resentment and frustration and, and, powerlessness a little, little bit of resignation well but i can't succumb to resignation that's that is the that is the flaw in me i i mean the, the word the word that comes to mind this is not a word that i use lightly because of the connotations but i think it's it's frankly depressing it makes me it, depressed it makes me depressed how much clothing i have to take off to, to go get on a plane and then stand there and and get dressed in front of other people I'm, I'm, I'm not like a modest person but there's something actually depressing to me that this is this is what it's come to it's deeply depressing and 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 it is, and you, you sit there and you feel like you could not, you could not design a system that is more sort of like, it's just the lowest level of debasement, right? You can't complain about it because it's such a low level. It's such a like mild shock. You can't really enlist, I mean, even the fact that you and I are devoting this much time to talking about it, there will be a certain number of people who roll their eyes and say, <clears throat> whatever, first word problems, whatever. Yeah, people who don't travel. Yeah, d- dummies <laughs> who like to say first world problems in response to things that they don't want to think about. But, like, culturally, 
to have arrived at a place where there is no there is no way that you can assure the world you cannot you, there there are no bona fides right you cannot say can we just accept that i am no threat to everyone like it is not necessary to assume and this is the thing i guess it is not necessary for a civilized society to assume a priori that every person is a threat until proven otherwise and the and it isn't a one to one correlation that either everyone is a threat or we have to uh, we have to target people by race, you know, and this is the this is the premise that's kind of advanced to us like, well, either everybody has to suffer or we or, or we have to resort to profiling because those are the only two options. And it's like, no, those aren't the only two options. They really aren't like there are a lot of people of all races, colors and creeds that are no threat. The vast, vast majority, uh, <clears throat> the number of people who are a threat are a, such a tiny minuscule percentage percentage of a percentage and that that our only as a as a people as a civilization that that the only solution to that tiny percentage is that every single person who wants to move about shall be treated shall be debased and treated as a criminal like that that each person who wants to travel for pleasure or business needs to be mugged by a cop before they can just move you know move to the next stage to the next stage of what is going to be a further debasing process like right. you know now you have been now you have been x-rayed and fingered and now you have to go sit in a broken chair <laughs> in a fart tube and maybe you'll get half a can of club soda while the plane sits for three hours on the tarp. Right. Like, like this whole process is like it, it speaks to a brokenness in the grand experiment, which I am a which I am a, a vocal proponent of. You know, the idea that we as human beings are evolving positively and we and culture is evolving positively and we are we are building on what we have made and we are creating, uh, we are working toward a, a, a utopia or working toward a betterment of our condition as people. And I, I've always believed in it. And this kind of like, like base police statism is so antithetical to it. And it, 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 it is depressing. It is humiliating and it is infuriating and i cannot resign myself to it right. and i don't i don't know how to protest it which is part of the part of what's humiliating but i can never just i can never walk up to that security line and just turn into a cow because because i really do feel like there will come a day when they will like when they're going to start hurting a certain percentage of the people over into a dark room and you never see them again. Totally. And, and it's, it's part of the problem is that it's a proxy war. I think you need to be very careful in life about how many proxy wars you decide to fight. Because mm. when you start a proxy war, you, you're, you go beyond some kind of an, like an initial problem, whether that's, um, a proxy war starts out with, with a good enough idea, which is that there's this thing out there, this really, really bad thing that happened, or this really, really bad thing that almost happened, and now we're going to put all this stuff in place 
to make sure that that never happens again, even though we really know it's never going to change what's already happened. It can't change right. what's already happened. But now there's going to be this whole new set of of new – I mean, how many people who died in a having a department store bombed in the 80s by the IRA really had that strong of an opinion one way or another right. about how things went with the, with the troubles? That's an extreme example. But in this instance, now – you know, I mean, the, the most obvious example being like the underwear bomber or the shoe bomber or the whatever bomber. I mean, our response to something that didn't even work, like a bombing tactic that didn't even work that was really implausible to begin with, is to now have everybody take up their shoes or whatever. So now we've got this entire force of people who aren't even cops. They're sub-cops. They're, 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 they're barely security guards. They know it doesn't work. This is well-documented. They yeah. know that all this stuff is theatrical. But they have to take it extremely seriously. And now they are, I, I, you know, feel free to disagree, but perhaps, perhaps I think somewhat understandably, they're mad at us if we don't play along because they're just doing their job. We're trying to do our job just being normal people. But now that proxy war is is it's taking this just the basic dignity of, of being just a normal american who can move freely and trying to as you say put us through this little this little sluice of indignity to make us kind of kowtow to this the basic concept that we are being protected by doing this and we are not being protected by doing that no. that's 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 the that's the really galling part of this if you honestly thought there's there's 2500 people in this line right now, and we know that one of them has explosives in their ass. By all means, well, I would say maybe just cancel the flight if you know that. <laughs> if you really know that, but but are you really going to search everybody's ass for a balloon full of explosives? No, because you know it's all bullshit. You know that none of that stuff is true, and it is about more than just first world problems. It's about this is a country where you used to be able to move freely and be able to to, to do stuff. Now you show up on lists and you don't know why and you can't get taken off the list. But the proxy war part I think becomes important because now, like every kind of proxy war, the, you start out by sol- non non solving a, a problem or a non problem, and now on top of that you've got all of these new problems as a result of that well the the primary new problem is i i cannot be alone in uh in traveling through airports and basically thinking the entire time about all the different ways i would i, I all the different ways i could sneak a bomb through here if i really wanted to that that's that was just that was just going to say this is this to me became extremely i see this now probably one out of three times i travel i see this exact same thing happen and each time it, it blows me away is that you'll be standing there and watching people you know seeing little kids get searched for bombs and then somebody pushing a what i would estimate to be probably a 100 gallon garbage pail on wheels is waved through yeah because they're an employee yeah they have a pass and they've been checked and stuff yeah so somebody making ten dollars and fifty cents an hour gets gets waved through it's not a question of class it's a question of just read one fucking spy novel and figure out how you would do it you know what you would do you would go to a disgruntled pilot and have them do it it's not going to be it's not going to be the old lady with the medicine and the gallon of water who doesn't understand the three ounce rule yeah anyway everybody's fighting the last war exactly but that but then that that's what you have these knock-on effects. Proxy war is maybe not the best term for it, but I think when you when you try to have these little uh, the dramatis personae of people who are trying to have a life play out these little political plays, and, and then act you know we're not supposed to act like we know anything's fucked up about it. I, I mean, how can an intelligent person do that for ten years and feel great about it and feel really proud? Well, I the the thing that concerns me is that something I really do feel this way. Something has been lost. In, in the course, <clears throat> in just the span of my adult life, uh, where the where the idea of uh, 
of living by example has has almost like completely gone awry in our culture and has been replaced by this like this cultural war of uh, uh, that that's that's happening in a thousand different ways that don't need to be detailed but but the 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 idea the idea that that uh, as the united states uh, in in our role in in what we used to think of as our role as like the aspirational nation where no matter where you lived in the world Right. You would aspire to come to America to live free and have opportunity. We showed that and, impossible things could happen and that it could be sustained at scale. Yeah, Im- impossible and, things. And all the criticisms of that, that America's wealth is a result of exploitation of an unexploited country that we stole from people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All those taken in and, and you know, like accepted and assumed as valid criticisms still the united states as a democratic experiment was for a very long time the place where human ideas taken from all around the world were sort of put into practice like let us try these ideas and there are there are innumerable ways that there were secret societies and that the whole thing was just a cia uh you know, like uh, fake radio station the entire time, et cetera, et cetera. But in but in actual fact, like the human experience, the human experiment was and is still being played out in America better than anywhere else, and more uh, on a greater scale, and with like with more factors. Right? There's no other place in the world that has as many people of different races, cultures, and creeds. Mm-hmm. All trying to come to a consensus, live according to common rules, and and with a system that allows those rules to evolve in real time to reflect new ideas and new cultures coming in. You know, there's the the the, the rules in America are so much different than they were twenty years ago and for the better because of the influx of all these new ideas. And we are like uniquely flexible to assimilate all these different new concepts and and a lot of that flexibility is because of our diversity but something is something is lost now that we are not we are no longer <clears throat> leading by example in terms of assuming like taking acceptable risks that yes people are going to get hurt that yes it is messy that yes every once in a while Every once in a while, somebody is going to sneak through with an underwear bomb, you know, in, in, all, in all frankness, because you cannot eliminate all crazies. You know, you cannot, you cannot stop all predators, and it's crazy to try. And so somewhere, somewhere on the scale, the, the practice of... of democracy and the practice of freedom has to look like it you know it has to this is my this is my beef with washington dc right now you remember going to washington dc when you were a kid you'd walk right up you you driving down pennsylvania avenue standing on the sidewalk get your picture taken in front of the white house it was an it was open and democratic looking 
You know, the president of the United States lives right there in that house. Yeah, and, with, with glass windows. Yeah, and yes, there's a fence because he doesn't want people playing frisbee on the lawn, but that fence is like just a fence. And yes, there are security people, but you don't see them. And this is the and, and there's the capital where where all the government is. Like it's all right here, laid out in this beautiful city. It's not it's not deep inside a a, a, like a, a bunker. <laughs> yeah. Even even if there are bunkers. But but the appearance of of America was like very appealing and very open and that was intentional, even even as we were fighting wars in Indochina on the sly. But now you go to Washington, D.C., and it looks like an armed camp. Everywhere you go, there are black SUVs full of black-clad machine gun-carrying Secret Service and, and park police and 50 different kinds of cop. The entire area around the White House is barricaded with tank traps. I mean, seriously, like tank traps. And... Blackhawk helicopters are flying over the city at all times. And again, it is, as you're saying, complete security theater. But it's 100% the wrong impulse. That isn't the theater that we need to be playing. Our theater needs to be the theater of confidence and, and calm. Right. And to play this theater of, like, of, of a security state is it's deeply anti-American. It is profoundly anti-democratic and like fills me with rage because it's an insult that I think borders on treason, an insult to the idea of America and the, the thing that I love about America and the America that I would die to defend, you know, and I, and, and, all of the like eagle tattoos and freedom chants or whatever are are garbage jingoism if you can't walk down the street in Washington DC without feeling threatened by our own police if you can't fly from Seattle to San Francisco without feeling like you are not just under surveillance but like presumed guilty Right, like dem- demonstrate demonstrate to us that you're not a threat. It's the it's the it is the it's antithetical to the American way, mm-hmm. and and to the American way that existed all the way through the Reagan years, all the way really through the Clinton years. And again, I hear the chorus of of uh, finger waggers who want to tell me all about the secret secret like behind the scenes governments and all that but i'm talking about the appearance the 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 temperature on the street the feeling that america had that other places didn't you know if you got off the subway in berlin in 1987 yes there were there were armed police standing around because the presumption then was that there were a million soviets on the other side of the fence but in america there were not tank traps around the white house you know, if the tanks get that far here, <laughs> and I know that the tank traps are there to keep to keep Timothy McVeigh and his uh, Freightliner van <laughs> from getting up close enough to the White House to like break the windows, but but it, it's a you know there there is a way to close Pennsylvania Avenue and 
decorate it with flowers. You know, there are ways to do these things and make it not appear that you are, that you're playing a video game. It's, it seems like it's such a Dick Cheney move. It is. It is. And that's what I, it's, that's, I think his legacy, in some ways, his like one of his many wonderful legacies for this country is going to be shit like that, which is, you know, the, this entire theatrical thing that is going to keep, you know, oh, pretty much any C minus attacker from really doing anything to us. Well, do you remember that scene in California a few years ago where those two bank robbers had machine guns and they walked down the street? Some uh, supposedly with impunity, just firing their machine guns all around, and the cops. the The story that the cops told uh, they was didn't that have enough firepower. And, they were and totally armor. outgunned. Yeah. yeah, and and like two thousand cops were outgunned by one guy and a machine gun, and his friend driving a car. Uh, and so the the response from law enforcement nationwide to that was. Listen, the bad guys have these really powerful guns, and so we need to, we need to double down. We need to militarize because there are these, these bad guys with guns. Now, the, through the history of America, there have always been bad guys with guns. They have always had as, as modern a gun as you could have, right? I mean, the, the sniper in the clock tower in Austin back in the 60s was a Marine sniper with a sniper rifle just shooting at students like it's it, it was never a question of firepower but because this guy's got a got an automatic or a semi-automatic weapon uh, you, you felt it immediately like all of a sudden the cops are wearing black fatigues everywhere and they're driving around in in suvs with blacked out windows and the the police have always wanted that but there were civilian checks on that kind of thing. Like the civilian population said, in general, we don't want the police driving around in tanks looking like Gestapo. It's not what we want. We want police walking, swinging their billy clubs and harassing teenagers, but sitting in soda fountains. And we, you know, like we, we want the police to be to protect us or to look like they protect us to look like members of the community and in the last 15 years the police have have through the this sort of hero worshiping cult and the the general militarizing of the United States now everywhere you look the cops have their have combat boots on their pants are bloused they're carrying like sometimes three guns and they look like paratroopers. <laughs> and particularly at, at any kind of big gathering, all of a sudden, the, even the cops that are in normal uniforms run home and get their paratrooper outfits on. And what, and what, what kind of job are you dressing for at that point? Exactly. If my, if my, if my kid is lost in a department store or something, or, or some, something happens and like somebody has to go up and ask for help with something, you're now walking up to somebody in paramilitary gear with three guns. Like, what is that person's job? What is their job and what do they think their job if is you to spend, help you? If you spend no. five years of your life walking around with three guns and body armor all the time, you're not going to think of yourself as a community police officer. That's exactly right. You're thinking right. of yourself basically as Army Reserve. And if you if you are coming to a peaceful gathering in your town, in the town square, and you show up and there are a line of cops dressed like army rangers on night patrol, 
do you go to them for help if you if you lose your wallet or do you i mean do you like stand on the other side of the square and eye them warily like the- i'll take it a step further for that matter if you think something is kind of odd or something you you know you want to make a, a note about to, to somebody i would you see even something think, you want to say something well kind of but i mean yeah obviously obviously if you find a terrorist threat you have to tell them about it but just something as simple as like i would be i would be it seems like it would be inadvisable to go to to go to that particular arm of law enforcement with anything but like a desire for deadly enforcement <laughs> i mean that that you know the the, the finer tools uh, are not going to get used nearly as much as like pepper spray and three guns that's exactly right like uh, like these are not police who are who are projecting that they are helpful or that they are kind or that they are thoughtful or considerate you know, well, that they're, they're, are, even, they're even human. They they right. they basically they're like stormtroopers a loaded term, but in the sense of being like an anonymous um, enforcer of some kind of an order that you never even heard. Right. So fast forward a couple of years from now, where the technology to have one in three of those people be a robot. You <laughs> I mean we really are like 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 so somebody's I, I read on Twitter the other day that. Uh, uh, somebody's i thought really really smart comment that people are always bitching that we were promised flying cars but if you were born anytime after 1970 what you were really promised by science fiction was a dystopian police state <laughs> and in fact the the promises of science fiction are coming true so quit your bitching and it it was it was a a, a very clever tweet but also, like, it really resonated with me, like, oh, right. If you were born in 1930, maybe you were promised flying cars. Yeah, or like a, like a house of the future. Yeah, um, right. But like all, a certain kind of, like, high-tech leisure. That was all, like, World's Fair 1962 Popular stuff. Popular science kind of stuff, yeah. By the time 1980 came around, science fiction was just like, oh, yes, it's going to be a cesspool ruled from on high by robots. And either you are, either you're living in a space pod, uh, you're, you're living on Elysium, or you're not, you know? And, and I feel like the, the, the solution, you know, we have to start now, and we have to start now by not resigning ourselves to, to these minor indignities uh, on behalf of the TSA. Like, it is possible to roll back the police state mentality. But it requires that we have, that we resume a mentality that, like, cultural-wide, or, or culture-wide, a mentality that, that favors peace and tranquility and consensus over divisiveness and, 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 and in a way that means that our hyper hyper um worship of individuality needs to be somewhat tempered you know the idea that every single person has a right to whatever their to, to whatever myriad like bullet points they can come up with to describe their own individual identity like that premise that each person's individual identity is is 
a, a, is a status rather than that we each are that that our status is derived through the, like the 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 welfare of the group you know that no one of us has a status greater than another if the lowest part or, or if any if any quadrant of the group is not like well cared for then we all lose status mm-hmm. and that is a that's a lost art and it, it it was never articulated before because it was presumed in a lot of ways and on all sides now every single person has every single person in america has this kind of strange combination of like appalachian frat boy um like rebel status you know what i mean every single person is a rebel now and if everyone's a rebel there will never be any peace we all we deserve to live in a police state if we're all rebels all the time and you mean I like, you like cultural pop culture rebels or do you mean like like a going to the compound kind of rebels i mean i mean we each it sounds think- like you're talking about like like just coming up with the built to purpose artisanal entitlement one person at a time uh, i mean it, when you think about it the one thing that unifies a uh like a newly out trans sex worker and a alabama frat boy investment banker deacon in his church the 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 one thing that unifies them is that neither one of them is going to let anybody tell them what to do neither one of them is going to let anybody define them right and culturally now we th- th- this dominates our conversation on every side of the political spectrum nobody's going to tell me wh- who i am or what i can do and i can be anybody i want to be and you're you're not the boss of me like that's the uh, th- that is the american consensus now and it is dull it's dull, and it le- it leads us down this path where we are children, and so the cops are doing what comes natural to them, which is, we need more guns, we need more authority, because that's the cops. That's what they will always do. It's what they've always done. Right. But there's no one to stop them now. They're never. They're never going to say, you know, let's just have two guns. It's not the cops' job to say. We need to have a more civil society, and when so as police, we're gonna we're gonna accomplish that by putting our guns away. Like the cops are never gonna do that, right? That has to come from that has to come from well, and it has to come from a new a new coalition of people from all walks of life who say, "No, my." You know, my individuality does not take precedence. You can tell me what to do. I will. uh, I do agree that although this law does not seem to apply directly to me, although I don't have any kids and I am being taxed for the public schools, I'm going to just I'm just going to I'm not I'm not. It's not that I am going to 
just give uh, stop complaining about my taxes to the public schools. I'm going to gr- I'm going to gratefully give my tax money to the public schools to educate my neighbors' kids because that's how you make a better world 20 years from now. And no one's preaching that anymore. You know, I think that used to come from that used to come from the from the churches. It used to come from the from the from just the your 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 normal sense of community. It wasn't a thing you could even reasonably argue. It was just the John Burt Society and the Wingnuts way way out mm-hmm. that would ever argue that we shouldn't be taxed for public schools. I, I I guess I just feel like the the stuff the stuff that bugs me in all this there's there's um you know there's always the, the the boogeyman of the various dystopian futures that we we call out and worry about but there's something like particularly um, enduring about Kafka to me because in in, in a Kafka uh, novel or a Kafka story it's the 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 part that's the most disturbing is you don't know why it's happening. That that's the thing. That's the thing that really gets me. So I take your I take your point in particular about things like the police. That's their job, right? I mean, the police are always going to want things that make it easier or less difficult to do police work. The people who gather intelligence are always going to want everything they need to make it less difficult to gather intelligence. There's never going to be a day when they say, you know what, we don't really need all these phone records. The part the part that I I find so uh, troubling, and the part that I think is going to lead to more and more credibility problems at a very many, many different levels is that this whole, like, well, this is just how it is that that's the Dick Cheney-ness of it yeah. is the like, is like, wait, wait, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, I've got photos here of what cops look like 20 years ago. I got photos now of what they look like now. They're still probably real good people, but I can't tell because they're wearing masks and, and riot gear. Why is that? And when do we get to, is that just how it's going to be now? And, and why is it, why is it that this person got picked out of, out of the line and not that person? Why is it that suddenly, I mean, there's just so much opacity, to this all-consuming need to control all things that I, I mean, I don't, I don't have a prediction on whether that's going to lead to like a revolution or something, but I think it certainly hurts the credibility of, of anybody who's trying to do something good in government is when you increasingly say things like, you know, you, you can't fly. And I can't even tell you whether you are or aren't on a list and what you can or can't do to do about it. I'm not even having this conversation with you right now. Right. That's the, 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 to me, that's why Kafka, the Kafka-esque component of this is what makes it uh, so deeply troubling. It's one thing to say like, okay, there's a real bad guy. There's this classic villain who's doing all this bad stuff to that. But I don't get that feeling at all. It's more like, again, the um, whatever, the Hannah Arendt, like banality of evil thing. It's yeah. just a bunch of people doing their fucking job. It's just their job is to create more and more opacity about this non-solution to what's increasingly starting to seem like an unsolvable problem. What's the problem? Well, the problem is security. Well, what, what does that mean? Yeah, like, right. what, I mean, how much further do we have to go? I mean, how much further will we go in these directions where – Things just keep getting weirder, and like the more that we ask questions about, the more the more suspicious that we seem. I'm not I'm not I'm not a wingnut. I'm not out here saying like <laughs> I don't even have a conspiracy theory. I just don't understand how how you can be a reason member of a democratic society when you're just not allowed to have basic information about why things are operating the way they're operating. And that what what's what's terrifying, or what is what is so dispiriting is when Obama was running for election the first time, all of this stuff was true. It was all happening all around us. I mean, the, the fact that, that the department of Homeland security is even called that 
like it it was i thought that it was the i thought it was the broadest parody in the world until i realized they were serious yes like homeland security it's as Nazi a thing you could say in English. <laughs> they just, it's like father, you can almost see fatherland yeah. got crossed off. Fatherland security is exactly yeah. what it is. And so, so, but we've accepted that. We don't even say homeland security with a sneer anymore. But when Obama was running, he was really selling it to us that it was time for a change. And I mean, obviously that was his slogan, but also like, yes, it is time for the left and the left's traditional relationship to the cops and to the army to step in here and we need to we need to cleanse our palate we need to have a juice fast a nationwide <laughs> juice fast and we are going to poop out some hardened fecal matter and we're going to come out the other side and we are going to demilitarize really was a big part of his message and Closing Guantanamo and all the other, like, restoring the rule of law. Did he actually at one point say that he was going to have the most open administration? Yeah. Wasn't that actual words that came out of his mouth at they some point? They were words that came out of his mouth. Even, and he, even as the, the number of these, like, national security letters has gone off the charts, and uh, <laughs> the numbers are just not, not adding up. Well, and, the, it's and, and it, it isn't just that, but, like, he did, he, he, uh, he eliminated not a single thing. And so... When you look now at 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 the at the past six years, and you realize that Obama and his administration have have accepted all of those George Bush era like militarizations as fait accompli, you you know that a Hillary Clinton administration is not going to back is not going to back any of that stuff off either like she she has to appear to be as hawkish as the most hawkish democrat because she you know she traditionally that would be the number one attack you would make on a on a female president is that she's not tough enough you know she's not going to roll back any of these security uh platforms so what you what you have come to is that really the democratic party the the left the left choice in america is now as invested in a police state as the right. And it isn't, it isn't working anymore. There really does need to be a new conversation where we start with the premise that we are not at, at, we are not at in constant war. Well, and start with the premise that this guy, this is fucked up. It's, it's just that, that it doesn't feel like there's any – everybody seems to be kind of grimly nodding along about this horrible situation that nobody likes but we have to deal with. And I, I just don't feel like there's been like a collective exhaling where everybody goes, you know what? This is fucked up. Right. We, we, need, to, we, need, to, we need to get a couple things – we need to get our mind right about a few things. Yeah. We don't want to be dummies. We don't want to get attacked like because of carelessness. But like our <laughs> – but I mean, how much longer can we keep moving in this particular direction and, you know, just close our eyes and think of England? You know, it's like there, there's something's got to happen where we just go, look, it's, it's fucked up. The and, exhale. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know what that looks like. And I just hate fucking hate politics so much, but I, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what the, what, what kind of solution you can have because that, that's a conversation nobody wants to have. Nobody wants to be the one who sticks their head up, especially if they're trying to get into office. Right. Nobody wants to, like you say, nobody wants to stick their head up and go, you know what? This is, this is pretty fucked up.
Well, and and what it's what, I mean, we and then here's the other thing. Then John is like, we can't even really know how much terrorism has been stopped because then that would be <laughs> harm right. the security <laughs> right, to let right. us know what's actually happened. Yeah, it would it would be dangerous because not every third person walking through an airport is thinking. Now, if I had a Coke, if I let's see, if I had three shampoo bottles that were full of the three components that make plastic explosives. And my friend had three shampoo bottles. Like, how many terrorist plots have been foiled? Like, okay, let's assume all of them. Or, I mean, it's, it, it is irrelevant, ultimately, to the, to the question of... And this is, the, this is the question of automating armies. You know, and this was the problem with the invasion of Afghanistan in the first place. Before we even invaded Iraq, there was, from Rumsfeld, this, like, hard-on for technology... Where he felt like he wasn't going to have to put American lives at risk in order he, he to. He thought it was going to. He thought it was. I think he, in, it seems like he thought it was going to be basically like the Allies rolling through Europe in World War II, but with like space lasers. With space lasers. They right. were going to give we us were... flowers and there would be American, little American flags being waved and our guys would have their big bubble helmets on and walk around with space lasers. Space lasers and they'd be talking to each other on heads-up displays and the Taliban would lay down their guns or their sharpened sticks or <laughs> whatever it was that he thought they had and we would be greeted in Afghanistan like liberators and conquerors. Finally. Finally, the Americans are here. Because everybody knows in Afghanistan and Pakistan, traditionally they welcome invaders. <laughs> and yeah, but the but the idea and and the military keeps moving in this direction. Like you know, what would be good for business is an American invasion. You know, you know what people love. Yeah, they love to see American invaders, particularly robot invaders. <laughs> I can't actually see their faces, but I'll bet they're nice. But like. Well, the, the the military is talking about this like one in three, one in four soldiers now being a robot in the next twenty years. Because, Are you serious? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is their new. This is the this is the big position paper now. Oh, that be, and and a big part of that is like the the support staff can be can be replaced with robots. So no, not not drone planes, but like drone people. Drone people, absolutely, or uh, probably like more like a drone vehicle dash. Well, person. yeah, vehicle person, but it would be a situation where they could reduce the living humans that, w- that constituted a brigade, and still have a brigade strength mm-hmm. of force because they would replace the humans that they're taking out with robot helpers, and <laughs> you know, and then robot friends. And then, yeah, robots, uh, you know, first ro- first the robot cooks. Yeah. And then the robot ninjas. <laughs> okay. Maybe, yeah, maybe maybe they could use, like, farm equipment. They could kill two birds with one stone. They could go yeah. in and maybe uh, they could yeah. have ro- robot farm soldiers. Well, it'll, it'll be a grenade thrower, and then it'll, he'll be pulling a plow. Yeah, or maybe he could uh, pull out some, uh, you know, some of the natural resources, get out some of the uh-huh. base metals. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> it's, pulling a lot, a plow it's a lot like Super Train. <laughs> also digging diamonds. It's a little bit of a military A, a diamond-digging soldier bot. Yeah. Yeah. But... But what that pres- what that presumes is that whatever foreign policy we're, we're trying to affect is not worth an American life, and if and if we can remove American lives from the equation, then we no longer have a problem at home because we no longer have moms on the TV crying about their dead sons. Oh, I see what you're saying. And if we 
if we are no longer losing soldiers and if robots are cheaper than soldiers and they are then it's not it, it, it's not like we would ever reduce the defense budget we would just have more and more soldiers more and more robot soldiers and with with less and less political cost less and less investment and a much much lower threshold of of engagement like already we are bombing people from drones and uh, and despite you know and we have a we have a listener to Roderick on the line who is a drone pilot are you aware of that mm-hmm, you told me about that yeah and he has a he has very strong feelings that the drone program is ethical and that uh you know under tight control and is a you know is a service to our country and he uh he's written a book about it that he sent me and it's a very interesting book but the the standard the ethical standard for what it takes now for an for american technology to kill somebody i mean it's it's been on the on the way for a long time but but and and in, in a way carpet bombing uh Carpet bombing a city from fifty thousand feet, and like drone attacking somebody in the desert of Yemen. Uh, there's not a you know, I, you can't really make a case that carpet bombing is any more discreet. Certainly, but you know we're right up against the Monroe Doctrine here. You know we are we are do, we are essentially assassinating heads of state of non states. In, in in contravention of like our own law and and what we're, and what we're trying to do is eliminate our investment in the sense of if we can take our soldiers out if we can take our human cost away and this is true of in the police too like they are not willing to put a policeman in a situation where he might get injured because it looks bad and it feels bad. And so in order to keep the policemen safe, they militarize them to the point that we are now facing a wall of black-faced, uh, like armored cops. And at every step of the way, it's like, right, I don't want a policeman to get hurt either. But actually, the risk of getting hurt is part of the job of being a policeman. And if you and 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 the reality is if you send one cop in his shirt sleeves into a group of agitators 9 out of 10 times he's going to be able to relate to them on a human level and diffuse the situation and if you send 25 cops dressed as robots to confront those agitators 99% of the time it's going to turn into a fight and the and the risk has to be that that one cop, one out of ten times, is going to get hurt. And if you're not willing to take that risk, then you set up a situation where we're, where we're all fighting always, all the time. Ugh. And nobody's saying please or thank you. Oh, sad. <laughs> Mm.